Welcome to AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. Father John O'Malley joined the Jesuits in 1946, right after World War II and more than a decade before the Second Vatican Council was announced. You could say he's seen a lot of change in his 92 years, but that would be a massive understatement. Father O'Malley looks at this era of upheaval with a historian's eye, and he was quick to point out to me in our conversation that no period in our church's 2,000-year history has been smooth sailing. Father O'Malley is the University Professor of Theology at Georgetown, where he specializes in church councils, among other topics. He has just released his 12th book, titled When Bishops Meet. In the book, he looks at big questions about church doctrine and structure and traces how they were handled at the Council of Trent, Vatican I, and Vatican II. As I'm a Catholic who was born and grew up entirely in the post-Vatican II era and can forget about the impact it had, I loved the way Father O'Malley's book describes how radical Vatican II was from the perspective of someone who lived through it and studies church history for a living. We talked about the book and a recent essay by Father O'Malley about his years in the Jesuit novitiate. As you'll see, Father O'Malley is a delightful conversation partner, and we had a lot of fun. Please remember to subscribe to AMDG on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen, and leave us a nice review on iTunes. Thanks for joining us. Well, Father John O'Malley, thank you so much for joining us on AMDG. How are you doing today? Very fine, thank you. I'm happy to be with you, Mike. So I'm I'm excited to talk to you about your most recent book, which is number, how many now books have you written? Well, it's hard to tell, but I think there are 12 monographs, and then some books I've edited, and collection of studies, and so forth. So this was... This was the easiest book I ever wrote. The easiest one. So it's called When Bishops Meet, and it is a look at three of the most recent councils in our Catholic Church, uh, the Council of Trent, the First Vatican Council, and the Second Vatican Council. You've researched those and written about those councils before. How is this book different? Why did you want to look at them in a, in a new way? Well, yes. So I, re- I wrote a book, uh, what, 11 years ago on Vatican II, and I thought, well, why not do Trent? So I did Trent. And I thought, why not do the one in the middle, which is Vatican I, which was published last year. So then after I finished the Vatican I book, I thought, you know, uh, when you put those councils together and compare them, you see things that you don't see when you take them one by one. And uh, all at once, you, you understand better simply what a council is, and then you uh, understand... Uh, the uniqueness of each of the councils, at the same time, how they're linked to one another, how they're continuous with one another. So the book is, uh, uh, I like the book, I must say. Uh, I think it, uh, it's, uh, if you take it seriously and look at it and think about it, it, uh, it says a lot about the church today. And that's uh, one of the reasons I, I write history at all. Any case, let me just tell you about the the structure of the book. Can I have to do that? So, Please. Okay, yeah. So the um, first it begins with three questions, and these are questions that implicitly, sometimes or explicitly, ran through all three of these councils. And the first one was, what is a council? That is to say, what does a council do? What does it hope to accomplish? And from the very beginning, so let's take. 
the first church-wide council, 325, it's a long time ago, uh, there was a certain pattern. Uh, and that pattern prevailed up until Vatican II, when Vatican II had a different pattern. So that's very interesting. So up until Vatican II, the purpose of a council, the ultimate purpose, was to establish uh, public order in the church. Uh, with Vatican II, the shift changes. It's to uh, take some time out for the church to reflect upon its own identity, to explore and articulate its deepest values, and then to proclaim to the world its sublime vision for humanity. So that's a big shift. Uh, so that's the first question. The second question is one that is always coming up with when you talk to Catholics and others, does church teaching change? And that becomes an issue for the first time in the Council of Trent, for reasons I explained in the book. And it comes up just very strongly in Vatican I and then in Vatican II. And these councils had different ways of dealing with it. And Vatican II really handles it, sort of faces the issue pretty squarely and comes up with ways of handling it. Then the third fundamental question, it runs very much runs through all three councils, is who is in charge? Uh, and basically we're talking here about bishops and the pope. What is that relationship? What's the relationship between a council and the pope? Who's in charge? But also, what role do, in the past, what role did secular authorities have? So anyhow, that's a, that's a good question. So. So, and the book is structured that way of kind of taking some of those questions and then uh, following them through the three councils. So each chapter with a section on Trent, Vatican I, and Vatican II. So as you were approaching it that way, what are some of those things that you learned through that process? How did your perspective change at all? Well, uh, what it changed was for me, first of all, to see how, um, how unique Vatican II was which I knew on one level but didn't know on another, and then to see how, uh, uh, for instance, the, uh, the Vatican II actually kind of came up with solutions to the uh, uh, who's in charge and does church teaching change that uh, were... Uh, just kind of stand out now in a, in a new way. And I sort of said, oh, yeah, now I, I see more clearly, and I think others will see more clearly what was going on in each of those councils, but especially in Vatican II, because it seems to me that Vatican II is the most recent, and you heard a lot about it. I mean, you know, on the one, people like it, they don't like it, which drives me crazy. But uh, uh, they don't really understand it, and this will... It's an easy read. It's short, to the point, easy read. So I was born in 1986, yeah. decades after the council had closed, grew up in the post-Vatican II church. So for me, I, that was all I knew. And so I never thought about how radical it was. But you kind of go through some of those things, especially in relationship to the two councils that preceded it. Um, so one thing in particular that stood out that you mentioned early in the book is that Praise is a major rhetorical form in Vatican II. The language of praise, a very positive tone. What what did you mean by, by well, that? Well, okay, so here's the thing. The what did, When the councils first began, 325, 
the, uh, they were, it's convoked by the Emperor Constantine, so convoked by the secular power, and uh, he gave the bishops free reign, but he looked upon it, and they looked upon themselves as kind of the sec of a ecclesiastical form of the Roman Senate. And what did the Roman Senate do? It made laws. So the Council, First Council of Nicaea made laws, said public behavior, trying to make sure that good public behavior in the church with punishment if you didn't behave. And then the Senate heard high-level criminal cases. And that's what the Council of Nicaea did. It was a worst sin was heresy. And this priest, uh, Arius, they convicted him of heresy and they punished him, they excommunicated him. So that's what councils did. And uh, the, uh, what was your question again? <laughs> I'm, so I'm curious about how Vatican II, you mentioned the languages of praise. Oh, yes, you're right. It's not yeah. about the, the yeah, rules yeah. and condemning okay, as much. Yeah, okay. So this is, this, uh, so this language of the councils up until Vatican II tended to be, therefore, on the negative side. Uh, we condemn, we condemn, we condemn. Uh, now, that's, you have to look, there's a positive teaching underneath this, but that's what it was. So John Twenty-Third, when he convoked the council and first addressed the council on October the 11th, 1962, said, look, we don't need to condemn anymore. Uh, take a positive approach, especially what he said. So, okay, that's good. Take a positive approach. How do you do that? <laughs> so instead of criticizing uh, somebody or something or some idea, you look at it positively, you praise it. Uh, instead of criticizing a person, uh, you say something nice about the person. So that's that language of praise that gives Vatican II this uh, new structure, really, and therefore it starts to do a different thing than the previous councils did, as I said it. So the church reflects upon its identity, you know, uh, explores its deepest values and, pro and uh, articulates them and then proclaims its message to the world. That's a big change. So One of the changes you mentioned is at Vatican II, the word holiness coming up a lot. This theme of the, the universal call to holiness for lay people, for uh, ordained religious, for everyone. And that was not necessarily a word that had been used no, I mean, so this call to holiness, it's just, it's, if you read Christian literature from the very beginning, it's, it's, it's there, of course, but not in councils. And why not? Well, because they were concerned with public order in the church. They were concerned with laws uh, and with uh, behavior, uh, and especially bad behavior in either doctrine or in your uh, public, your mores. Uh, and so the language itself would not allow a holiness theme to emerge. But once you change the language, once you take a positive approach to the Christian faith, the Christian mystery, well, holiness comes in. And what's interesting about Vatican II and rarely commented upon, which you mentioned, is that uh, uh, it first comes up in the second year of the council and then it becomes a really a very important theme all the way through. That's what we're about. That's what the church is all about. Important, isn't it?
Yeah, I, you mentioned the, that call to holiness and that the church in Vatican II kind of redefines itself or just makes very clear that its main way of being in the world is to be an institution that reconciles, a reconciling institution. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So, this, so this reconciliation theme is part of this uh, language of praise, but it's also of John the 23rd again, when he calls the council, what does he say? He said, well, uh, this is a council to uh, come together for this quest for grace and holiness, and uh, I want to extend a cordial invitation to our brothers uh, in the other churches. So all at once, this hand is extended in friendship to the other Christian churches. So that's, that becomes a big theme, so ecumenism, uh, especially the Protestant churches. But once that theme gets in there, then it takes a whole, uh, all kind of aspects and dimensions. So reconciliation then with other religions, so with Judaism and so forth. What is more needed in our world today, right? Uh, and Pope Francis is, uh, you know, one of the great apostles of uh, trying to get us together and not hate one another and work together. And that was, that's the fruit of the Second Vatican Council. So you can see then Pope Francis as a Second Vatican Council Pope, someone who was clearly formed by that. And there's some, a lot of continuity, I think you could see, from the council to his pontificate. How, when you look at what he's doing and what his priorities are, do you see him uh, representing continuity with the priorities of the council? Well, it's interesting. I mean, so uh, Pope Francis is the first pope since the council not to have participated in the council. And yet, in my opinion, he's the one who kind of got the message in a full and integrated way. I mean, that sounds paradoxical, but I really think that uh, uh, Pope John Paul II and, uh, well, Pope, Pope Paul VI, Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict, I mean, they were there, they knew what was going on. But uh, they fought the battles of the council. and. That colored their vision. They, they had their own sort of approaches to things. Whereas uh, Bergoglio was a young theological student when the council was going on, just ended, and uh, got a more uh, holistic kind of view of it. And I think he, he really, he, he's got it. He, he, he gets it. And first of all, he gets that reconciliation theme. Uh, then he gets the the one of the one of the themes is uh, of reconciliation is in Vatican II reconciliation with the world. What's that mean? It means the Church uh, now says, "Yeah, uh, we have a responsibility for getting you to heaven. That's our primary responsibility." But that's not divorced from the world in which we live. So we have to have a concern for this world. We're a partner with the good in the world, not with the bad in the world, with the good in the world. And therefore, I mean, it makes sense, uh, Pope Francis's uh, encyclical Laudato Si on care for our common home. And that's addressed to everybody, and it's not getting us directly to heaven. It's, let's, let's do what we can for this world, and then we always have our eyes 
on the higher goal. A question Pope Francis hears, which is one that is raised about the Second Vatican Council that you mentioned, is about church teaching changing. There are times in which Francis says things. He talks about if uh, someone who is gay seeks God uh, with integrity, who am I to judge? Says, and then people are saying, oh, is he changing church teaching? You can't change it. Or is, he, is this just a pastoral response within church teaching? So you have a big section in the book, as you mentioned, on this big question. We have this ancient tradition. Does church teaching change? How does it change? How doesn't it change? So what do we see from the Second Vatican Council in the way that they looked at that question? Well, they looked at it in three different ways. And to give the the pithy answer, uh, church teaching changes and it doesn't change. <laughs> it's uh, discontinuous and it's continuous. So that's the short answer. So it, so what happened in the 19th century? The, uh, we, this uh, critical approach to the past took hold in all disciplines, even in sacred disciplines. So we look now at some of the things that the church was doing and we say, well, yeah, I mean, this isn't, wasn't done by the apostles, it wasn't done by Jesus, it's being done now. How do we deal with that? So the uh, council said three ways of dealing with, three ways of looking at this. One is to say that uh, teaching developed. That is to say, and this, they get this from Cardinal Newman, who's being canonized uh, right uh, this month, next month, um, that uh, the development of doctrine, that is to say, uh, teaching doesn't have the same form, but maybe, but it it's, uh, has its, its roots in the past. So the acorn and the oak. The oak doesn't look like the acorn, but it's there. So that's one way. Uh, goes on in a certain direction. Uh, it's on a certain path. The other way teaching changes is uh, bringing it up to date. I mean, seeing how it uh, relates to the contemporary world. So it's a good example of that in the Council of Trent with its approach to the sacrament of marriage. I'll talk about that later if you want to. Uh, but then the third way is the most traditional way and the most radical way that uh, the going back to the sources and saying, oh, uh, that's the way things went. That's we've gone as far that way we want to go. We need to we need to take a little, we need to take a turn in the road. We need to go back to the fork in the road and take another road. So that's the tr most traditional way from the very beginning of the church almost, and uh, then has uh, different forms uh, during history. But uh, it's the most radical. Vatican, the council uses that. So. It's, it's a difficult question, uh, and there's no easy answer to it, but the thing to keep in mind is that uh, uh, these, uh, this doctrine doesn't just kind of float out there in outer space. It's passed it's from human mind to human mind, and in so happening, uh, changes happen. 
Does that make any sense? Sure. No, sure. <laughs> and again, sometimes it can feel so distant now, having decades having passed since the, the council closed. What What is maybe one or, or more than one thing that we might forget about the Second Vatican Council or take for granted or something that you would say, let's make sure we don't forget this particular element? Well, I mean, one very... One, um, a very particular thing. I, I teach a course called uh, Two Great Councils, Trenton Vatican II, and I just taught it uh, last semester here at Georgetown. And one thing about the liturgy, the students can't believe that people went to Mass and uh, did not receive communion. They, they couldn't believe it. Uh, so that's <laughs> one very obvious thing that's changed. Uh, then I think the whole... Uh, uh, what I've just been talking about, the, uh, uh, well, let me put it this way. The council gave the church, gave each one of us, and especially gave the Pope a new item in his job description, namely, to be an agent of reconciliation in the world. And John Paul II, Benedict, and now especially Francis have taken that extremely seriously. And that's new. That's new. That's not true before the council. Hmm. In the, the last section of the book, you Let's think do this middle section. The middle section? Yeah. Before we get to the last, well, so what, what, what part from the middle section? Well, the middle section is the participants. Right, okay. You want right. to talk about that? Yeah, let's talk about that. Okay, so there are four, four chapters there. So the first chapter is on the popes and the Roman Curia. Their roles differ from council to council. Uh, so it's kind of enlightening to see how they differ. Don't, Vatican Council, both Vatican, Vatican I and Vatican II, met in the Vatican. That made a big difference. Council Trent met in Trent 400 miles away. The participant of the pope and the Curia was very different important. Next one is theologians. Uh, their role in these councils was very different. It was always crucially important, but it, it took different forms. And in a sense with Vatican II, their official form of their participation was minimal, but their actual influence was maximal. <laughs> so paradox. Then uh, the laity. Bing. Second Vatican Council, there were a handful of lay men and lay women there and, and some nuns. Uh, but uh, at the Council of Trent, the, the Holy Roman Emperor and the other rulers were major participants. Uh, and uh, uh, they, their ambassadors to the Council were extremely important and so forth. Then the last category is the other. Uh, those who were either physically present or not physically present who had a huge influence on the council, the not, not Catholics. So, Council of Trent, the Lutherans, that is to say the Protestants, that gave the council its agenda pretty much. Uh, and then some Lutherans actually did appear at the council. Then in Vatican II, we had all those Protestant, and, I mean, other non, other, and, Orthodox observers at the council, but then there were these big realities that were present and 
for Vatican one and Vatican II, the biggest reality was the so-called modern world. That is to say, the world that uh, came into existence after the French Revolution, where the impact of the Industrial Revolution, the uh, scientific revolution, the revolution of the philosophical revolution, the revolution in historical studies, all these things came to fruition and confronted a whole other worldview. And so Vatican I, with a lot of qualifications, said, no, no, no modern world. As a matter of fact, some said, we're going to chase the modern world away. Vatican II, 100 years later, said, you know what? Modern world's still here. <laughs> it's not the same modern world as it was in the 19th century. It's different, but uh, maybe we should take another look at it, have a different approach. So those are the, those are the three chap three ch uh, four chapters now. Well, so as you kind of, again, trace these lines and, and look at similarities and dissimilarities, then at the end you reflect on what might be next. If there's another council to be had, would it happen in the Vatican? Might it happen someplace else? So do some speculating. So as a historian, uh, what might be another council? What, what are, things, are things that we should be thinking about when considering that possibility? Okay, so here's a question I'm often asked when I give a lecture something. When will there be a Vatican III? Or don't you think we need a Vatican III or something like that? And I say, no, I don't think so. Uh, so here's the problem. Uh, first of all, who's going to participate in the council now? Uh, Vatican II, the worldwide episcopate, it was the fullest participation of, of episcopacy in the history of the councils. It's about 90%, a little more than 90% of all the bishops in the world. Uh, and so at any given moment in St. Peter's, there were about uh, 21, 2200 bishops. That's uh, filled the nave. There's other room in the basilica, but getting many more than that uh, would be a kind of a problem, a psychological problem, as well as a logistical problem, because today there are almost twice the number of bishops. Go figure. What about other people of other religious faiths? What about people of other religions? Should they be there in the, in the council itself and participate? Uh, so that's a question. Uh, where is it going to meet? Well, it certainly does not need to meet in the Vatican and on principle uh, of the 21 councils that Catholics recognize, uh, seven have met in Rome. The others in a different place. I mean, the Council of Trent, for instance. So there are advantages and disadvantages meeting in Rome, meeting in the Vatican. Uh, what about uh, what about the impact of electronic technologies now? Does that help us solve any of these problems? So forth. So, I mean, for me, so boy, today. Getting a council together, sort of with Vatican II as the pattern of how a council functions, just becomes sort of logistically a nightmare. Uh, I don't know how you would do it and pull it off. So, is there some other solution? Well, I think Pope Francis is pointing in a direction with these synods, where you get representative bishops and you don't allow a big problem to build up, build up, build up. 
you kind of do things, you know, more or less as they appear on the agenda. So, you know, some of these sentences seem very inconclusive, but the it's the process that's so important. This is this consultative uh, and taking a look at the situation as it really is and giving the Holy See the information and the arguments it needs to make decisions. So at least for me, for the time being at least, the foreseeable future, that's the way to go and not try to put together another council, as I say, in the pattern of Vatican II. So we're preparing now for the next synod in October, which is on the Amazon region, but kind of connected to care of creation and care of vulnerable populations around the world. Last year was on youth, young adults, vocational discernment. We've had one on family life. Now, synods are different from councils, as you make sure to note in the, the book. They, are, they don't have the same sort of binding authority. Could you just uh, explain those, the differences? Okay, well, look. So until uh, 1965, <laughs> the words synod and council were synonyms. They were used interchangeably. So synod was simply the Greek form and council was the Latin form. So the Council of Trent refers to itself as this holy synod. And the uh, uh, Vatican II does the same thing. And the official acts of, the, of Vatican II are entitled Acta Synodalia, the synodal proceedings of Vatican II. So what happens in 1965? Uh, Pope St. Saint, Pope Saint Paul VI, uh, to try to do what, how does this collegiality function, uh, created the Synod of Bishops. And in that document, the, uh, uh, he re redefined the word synod uh, so there was not now a council, which is a body able to make decisions binding on the church. He now defined it really as a consultative body for the Holy See. Uh, and with no legislative or any other kind of power. So that's now when we use the word synod, it tends to have, have that meaning rather than its traditional long-standing meaning. So, and it seems to be, again, that they are more nimble than a council might be since they happen over the span of just a month, usually, at least in the past few, and are topics that are, again, can be selected without much lead up, kind of responding to the signs of the times. Curious for you as a, uh, a historian and observer of the modern church, if you were in, uh, asked to give some advice on what some s topics for synods to take up might be, what do you think are one or two topics that would be worth a synodal look? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't want to get into that. <laughs> no, I just, on the top, top, top of my head, I'd, I'd probably say something really foolish. So I really had never thought of that. I never sort of thought of myself as you know, setting the agenda for a synod. So let's maybe we can come back to that one. All right, we'll yeah. let you we'll let you ponder that one. I do want to, to talk about to turn now from again reflecting on especially this big time of transition in the church and. Uh, well, look, okay. Oh, you're, you're, you have an idea? No, I'm just going to say you oh. say big big time of transition. Right, that is true. Name a time that wasn't a time of transition. Okay, right. so don't. I'm not the historian. No, uh, no, no, no. But right. no, they're good. So that's what we always say. Well, this is a time of transition. Indeed, it is. But 
There are all types of transition if you kind of look at history. So, okay, didn't mean you were not from Right. Well, I was even thinking about uh, Vatican II as a time of transition. This is a time of transition. I, I guess there can sometimes be the temptation to want to go back to the good old days. I think there are contemporary Catholics now who would like to return to the Middle Ages in, in some forms. But uh, is what you're saying is that there maybe were no good old days. Absolutely. Right? I mean, my motto is memory sweetens the past. So what you do... You forget the pain. So you had a very difficult illness and you suffered and you screamed and you da 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 and now you, you recovered. So you tell people how oh and how I was, you know, and you laugh and so you weren't laughing when you were going through it. Hmm. So uh, the uh, <laughs> I've sometimes threatened to write a book on the history of the church called the history of Catholicism, you know, from Peter to the present, colon, the years of crisis. <laughs> so one thing after the other. So, yeah. So speaking about memories, I do want to talk a little bit about your recent essay on the novitiate and the, the Jesuits. So I said earlier I was born after the Second Vatican Council. You entered the uh, the Jesuits more than a decade before the council was announced. So you had lived through, within the Society of Jesus, that big change. So tell me a little bit about your time in the novitiate. It definitely looked quite different then than it does now for a young man entering the society. Oh, very much so. The uh, So I entered the Jesuits in 1946, and I was, of course I was just a babe in arms, but uh, actually I was 18 years old when I entered, 1946 and was at this novitiate in Milford, Ohio for two years. And uh, uh, it was a basically kind of a monastic experience. So the day, I, an hour after I walked through the door, uh, I gave up my watch and my wallet. I didn't need my watch because life would be regulated by bells. I didn't even need my wallet because there was nothing to buy. <laughs> so everything was provided for us, and uh, basically all contact with the outside world was cut off. With no radio, no newspapers, no magazines, and no telephone. Uh, so it went on for two years, uh, and a very chopped up daily order uh, every half hour, every hour, every hour and a half was regulated by bells. Um, and so, very different from today. Uh, actually, it was good. I mean, I, uh, we, we all, we, <laughs> believe it or not, uh, when you sort of read this little essay mind, between the lines you might read it, we enjoyed ourselves, we had a lot of fun. And we became, we were so cloistered that we formed, a, we got to know each other very well, because it was the only people we ever met. I mean, for one thing, we were there at the novitiate for four years, because after the novitiate, we did two years of study, but there, under basically the same kind of discipline, and uh, we never saw a woman. Uh, when our, of course, except when our parents came to visit, when our mother came to visit, or sisters, or somebody like that, but there was no, there were no women on the grounds. There were, there was no. They didn't exist. 
Was that transition difficult from coming from school into that world in which you really Well, this was, I tell you, it was not as difficult as it might seem because, uh, first of all, it was right after the Second World War, so we all sort of said, this is boot camp. You know, this is boot camp. So, you know, they put you through this stuff, you know. Uh, uh, and uh, Catholicism was much more... Uh, Please don't misunderstand me. I say regimented uh, uh, than today, and the world itself was more disciplined, you might say, than it is today. So uh, now, for me personally, this was not a particularly difficult transition to entering the novitiate. But ooh, uh, some of my relatives were enraged by it, that, uh, you know, you you mean you're never coming home? You know, so we'd never, I didn't, I didn't sleep in a bed or have a meal outside those precincts in four years. Uh, and you can only write to your parents once a week and that's it, that's the only contact. So I found out later how critical they were. <laughs> so what, they thought that you should have been more accessible, or what were they doing to you here? Well, what were they, why, why are you, all at once you just don't like, as if you don't have a family, as if you, you don't have any friends, uh, you cut off all contact with them. And that is, really was not a good idea, I mean, I think. But, uh, uh, so, for family and friends, in some ways it was more difficult than it was for me. Sure. Although I must say, <laughs> That the first night when I was there, uh, it was in the winter, and they had the windows open to air out the dormitory, and I lay down in this simple little iron bed with uh, curtains around the, the cubicle, and I said to myself, what have you done? <laughs> what have you done? Oh, well, the good news was the door swung open. Uh, so I thought, well, I won't leave tomorrow because that would really make a bad impression. I'll leave the day after tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, tomorrow wasn't such a bad day. And then the next day wasn't too bad. And then, then all at once I was there for two years. <laughs> And 70 some odd years later, uh, here you are still. So one thing I loved in the essay was, as you mentioned, kind of setting out the order of the day, which was very regimented. There would be free time, recreate for 10 minutes, yeah. 10 minutes of, of free time. And also no no talking, You really, yeah, uh, right. especially at mealtime uh, most of the time. Why, why weren't you allowed to speak at, at meals conversationally? Well, because, first of all, the... Uh, uh, I say it was kind of a monastic regimen, and that's what the way the monks were. Uh, moreover, it was the idea that in meals, so there was reading at the table, and this was the, we learned a lot from the reading. So the uh, first of all, we there was always a passage from scripture, kind of you know got beaten into you, and uh, then certain rules from part, parts of the Constitution and so forth were read every month. Uh, that was good. Uh, and 
Then we read uh, uh, the so-called passage of the martyrology, that is to say, the list of the saints for the following day for the, uh, in the liturgical calendar. And then some good books were read. So uh, that was a standard practice in religious houses. So, and we did, on occasion, of course, we did speak we, for feast days. And well, Every Thursday we, we spoke, and then there were a lot of feast days, the uh, major feasts, but there were some, some sort of secondary feasts, like feasts of Jesuit saints, those were always. So I'd say any given week we, had, we talked at dinner, that's the main noon meal, at least twice a week. You mentioned at the meals uh, in this reading that would happen that novices would take turns and that that was kind of harrowing because you would be reading in front of this this whole group uh, and but also very good practice for public speaking. It was terrific practice because this was a room in which there were about 200 people. Moreover, there was the clatter of the plates and the knives and forks, especially when the plates were being picked up and so forth and uh, there was no electronic amplification, so it was strictly your voice. Uh, so you, you really you had to learn how to project from the diaphragm, not to scream, not to shout, and uh, to articulate clearly so that they could understand you. And as I mentioned in the book, uh, you also <laughs> became very careful about pronunciation because if you mispronounced a word, you were immediately and publicly corrected. So this this uh, the person in charge of the reading, you mispronounce the word, say, repetat. It's Latin for let him repeat. Repetat. That word is, blah, blah, blah. and then you repeat the word, and on you'd go. Well, you didn't like to have a lot of those <laughs> when you were doing the reading. So you prepared carefully. If you saw a word you didn't know how to pronounce, you tried your best to find out how to pronounce it before you got that correction. I bet. Uh, what was the spiritual culture like uh, in the Novitiate? Well, I try to describe it in the book. Uh, it was a combination, basically, of kind of an older monastic culture, kind of frame things. That was the one frame, and then the other frame was the Jesuit documents and traditions, and most especially the spiritual exercises. So the high point, the center of the two years of the Rishate was the 30-day retreat, the full spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. Uh, and then, so that was a crucially important experience for us. And we were so fortunate in our Master of Novices, the one who led the retreat, William J. Young, who was uh, very aware of new developments in Europe in Jesuit studies and was translating some of them into English. So he, we got a very good training that way. Then every day, every, every class day, he gave us a class on the Jesuit traditions. So those were the two um, frames in the Novitiate. I look back now, I see things that, you know, in the light of today, 
could well have been different, but uh, it was a good training. Nothing there I really re- regret. I mean, it, it, it influenced me, con- continues to influence me immensely. I think about that training as you describe, and again, uh, we'll, in the notes to the show, we'll put a link so people can read it online, the, the essay. But so going through that introduction to the Society of Jesus, and then within the decade, the Second Vatican Council announced, what was that like as a young Jesuit seeing then the church going through such this big change. How did you adjust? Were you skeptical? Were you enthusiastic? What was that like? Well, I must say that uh, I was in Rome during two years of the council. I was in Rome writing my dissertation, and I was in a 16th century figure, but a church reformer. And with the council going on, all at once I began to say, oh, gee, there's kind of, this is a kind of another sort of reform, a sort of kind of parallels there. And uh, so I did my best to kind of tune into the council as it was going on. And what, what, at that time, uh, I was not, I received all this with great serenity, I think because I was a historian. And I knew that these these changes happen, these things happen, and uh, the council was kind of taking a long view of things, so that was fine. Then, once the council ended and uh, some of these things began to be put into action or kind of misused or misinterpreted, whatever, uh, then living through the decade from 1965 to 1975 was not fun. <laughs> I mean, you just didn't know what was going to happen next. And uh, 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 I was actually rector of a Jesuit, large Jesuit community at that time. Uh, and, you know, we had to make all kinds of adjustments and all kinds of shocks we faced. Uh, but uh, by 1975, things had pr- pretty much settled down. And, uh, uh, you know, we the, the big transition was over. So, how's that? Yeah, no, I and I'm fascinated too to think about. So, as someone who lived through that, who also has studied councils and church history, now looking at a time as you mentioned, yet another period of transition and crisis in the church, of which there have been really nonstop ones. Uh, what then would you say to younger Catholics today, maybe who were anxious about the church or not sure where they, where they fit in? Do you have any kind of words of hope or encouragement? Well, I just say, hang in there. Uh, you know, they, we like to think that the church is going to go on and on, and it, it has. Uh, and uh, it offers this vision for you, this center for your life, that is very precious uh, to the sacraments and the good news of God's love. Uh, So uh, don't get distracted by current crises. I mean, we have to do our part to deal with them and so forth, but uh, somehow or other these two will pass. And uh, so stay with it, stick with it. 
That's my advice. Uh, does that make any sense to you? Sure, it does. Thank you so much for speaking with us. And again, the, the newest book is called uh, When Bishops Meet. And we'll put a link to that. You can find that wherever books are sold. I have the Kindle version, the electronic version, so you can get it there. Um, and also the, the essay on the novitiate we'll, we'll share as well. So thank you for your teaching, your ministry, uh, and your, your thoughts today. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure working with you. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Doris Sump, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org. We're on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know is interested in discerning a vocation to join the Jesuits, visit us at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.